What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 27 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'd like to start today by acknowledging the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. I'd like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to this episode today. In today's episode, we're speaking to Daisy Christodoulou. Daisy is Director of Education at No More Marking, an educational organisation focused on helping improve assessment processes and enhance learning. Daisy is previously the Head of Education Research at ARC Schools, and prior to that was a high school English teacher. Daisy has written two books on education. In the first, Seven Myths About Education, Daisy argued for the centrality of knowledge in education and suggested that it's currently sidelined in contemporary discourses about teaching and learning. But today we'll be talking about her second book, Making Good Progress, The Future of Assessment for Learning. Daisy's a fantastic author, and this was really recognised in 2017 when she was named by Anthony Seldon as one of the 20 most influential figures in British education. I'm incredibly excited to be able to share with you this ERRR interview with Daisy. Today's discussion is all about assessment, and I find it hard to think of a more important and relevant topic for us to discuss. Assessment, in many ways, drives what happens in classrooms, and given the way that international rankings like PISA shape educational policy at the national level, to the way that state exams influence how students are taught at the local level, there's little doubt that we're often faced with the assessment tail wagging the pedagogical dog. Further to this, there are many concepts in today's discussion that I believe are vital knowledge for educators. We begin by discussing different models of learning and how they influence the way we should and shouldn't assess. We talk about assessment for learning and why it hasn't had the impact that it could have had. We explore incredibly important concepts such as validity and reliability and bring them into focus in discussion about coaching for high stakes exams and other applications. We talk about rubrics, question level analysis, and much more before spending the last section of the interview discussing comparative judgment, a new and innovative approach to assessment that holds much promise for assessing complex tasks in a reliable and holistic way. It was really a joy to speak with Daisy, and I hope you take as much from this interview as I did. Now, before we jump to the ERRR, just a reminder that if you'd like to stay up to date with any blog posts, podcasts, or resource summaries that I've been sharing recently, then please head over to www.ollilovell.com and sign up to the mailing list. And if you've been enjoying the ERRR podcast and you value it as a professional learning resource, I'd be eternally grateful if you considered donating a couple of dollars a month to support the ongoing room hire, audio production, web hosting, and other costs associated with producing the show. If you value this podcast as much as a cup of coffee each month, then please head over to patreon.com forward slash ERRR or follow the link from my website to make a monthly donation. I was grateful to see just the other day that recent patrons are taking this cup of coffee pledge challenge quite literally, with some quite clearly coffee cost-sized pledges making their way onto the site. Thanks to all those who have recently become patrons to support the ongoing production of the ERRR. It really means the world to me and helps me to clearly see how much people are enjoying the show. Well, that's enough reminders for now. So without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 27 of the Education Research Reading Room with Daisy Christodoulou. 
Daisy Christodoulou, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Hello. All right. So, Daisy, the first question we always ask our guests when they come on is, if you're at a party and someone says, hi, Daisy, what is it that you do? What's your answer? So, it depends on the party, but I'd normally say I work for a small assessment organisation and we've got a better way of assessing children's essays. That's what I'd normally say, something like that. Fantastic. And am I right in thinking you're the Director of Education at No More Marking? That's right, yeah. So that's my, my job title, yeah. Great. Did you want to tell us a little bit about what No More Marking is? Yeah. So we're a provider of online comparative judgment software. Comparative judgment is, as I said before, it's a different way of assessing children's essays. So instead of involving the typical traditional form of assessment where you look at an essay, read the essay and mark it against the mark scheme, with comparative judgment, you scan your essays into our system. They appear on screen a pair at a time. And you say to yourself, which is the better essay? Which is the better response? And if you do that a series of times, your colleagues join in and do it a series of times, then the comparative judgment algorithm combines all of the decisions that you and your colleagues have made and uses them to come up with a measurement scale for every piece of writing or response that you, you've judged. So that's the very simple basis of how comparative judgment works. It's a really exciting and innovative way of assessment. It's much quicker than traditional assessment. It's much more reliable, which to some people can seem really odd because it can feel quite subjective, but, but it isn't. And then perhaps the thing I'm most interested in is that in the medium to longer term, it has some really interesting potential benefits around teaching and learning, feedback to students and feedback to the teacher in the curriculum. So it's quicker, it's more reliable, it's got good benefits for teaching and learning. Fantastic. And I look forward to us delving into uh, comparative judgments in a bit more detail later on. I did want to ask, just to jump back a bit, you were previously the head of assessment at ARC uh-huh. schools, weren't you? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because the the kind of arc schools approach of having multiple schools working together isn't something that we're that familiar with in many countries outside of the UK. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit how arc schools works. Yeah, sure. So the sort of term for arc, I guess, in in the UK is a multi academy trust or MAT, and yeah, I guess MAT's multi academy trust are groups of schools. They're state schools, so they are financed by the state. But the kind of organisational difference is. They don't sit underneath the local authority. Mm. So, yeah, that's the kind of structural organisation difference. So the funding still comes from government, but the organisation is, is different from some other state-funded schools. Okay. So ARC is one of the sort of first mats, or one of the earliest mats in England. And I think the time, the time I was there, ARC had about 40 schools wow. in different regions of, of England. So how much would be standardised across ARC? Would they all be teaching the same lesson plans or the same assessments? Yeah. How how unified is it? Well, I haven't been there for two years. so <laughs> Sure, sure. You know, I don't want to say anything that's you know, not the case now and things change very quickly in all organisations. I think all the mats across England, you know, as I say, the mats are a fairly new phenomenon. I think with all of them, I wouldn't want to overstate the degree of centralisation. Mm. I would say within within every mat in England, even the most centralised ones, there's still a relatively high degree of teacher autonomy. So, I mean, in England, we always joke about apparently the French system, that the education minister in France can look at his clock, you know, it's 20 past 11 on a Tuesday, and he can say, well, everyone's studying, I don't know, Moliere. <laughs> I have no idea if that's true or not. <laughs> I suspect it's just based English and French prejudice. But, um, yeah. you know, like that level of, of prescription I would say I don't think there's any educational organisation in England that's at that anything close to that level. 
Mm. Um, I mean, I might be wrong, but that's not, you know. So, I mean, one of the things that we were doing at ARC is we were working on an English curriculum and we were working with the teachers in schools to develop that curriculum and to develop certain assessments. And actually one of the repeated sort of things we ran into again and again was that, you know, even for something as, you know, you think as sort of as straightforward as coming out of an assessments calendar or, a, you know, an English curriculum, some schools would have lessons that are an hour and 15 minutes long. Mm. Other schools would have lessons that were 45 minutes long. Some schools would have, have you know, two-week timetables. Some schools would have three or four lessons a week. Others would have five or six. Mm. So, you know, even just those sort of really quite basic logistical issues about the amount of time available and the chunks that it comes in were very different across the schools we were working in. And I would suggest, that, again, that that's probably true in, in a lot of schools in England. So, and those things seem quite trivial, but they're not. You know, if you're trying to do something involving assessment, they're, they're very real. Mm. I mean, some of the schools as well, and I, I get this not just with ARC, but everywhere. I mean, you look at a subject like history, for example, mm-hmm. one of the great challenges you have, if you there aren't many national standardised assessments in history before the age of 16. So if teachers want to get some idea of how their children are doing history, it's quite difficult. And you run into the issue as well that there'll be some schools who will teach maybe an hour of history on a carousel for you know, the first few years of secondary and other schools might give it three hours a week. Mm. So you've then got enormous differences in input. So then you're saying, well, is it fair to expect children who have had so much more time at this subject, uh, children who have so much less time than, than other children to be competing on the level playing field? So, you know, you run into all these issues, as I say, not just within a relatively small academic trust, but mm. at a bigger level if you're trying to do anything with assessment. And did you want to give us a little bit more of a history of your career today? What, what were you up to before you were at ARC? So I was a secondary English teacher. I taught English in secondary here is 11 to 18, age 11 to 18. So I taught pretty much the whole age range there. Yeah, that was what I did before, before I went to ARC. Cool. All right, let's jump into the book. So today we're discussing your book, Making Good Progress. And this is actually, to my understanding, the second book you've written yeah. about education. You also wrote Seven Myths About Education back in 2014. So mm-hmm. why is it that, you know, three years later in 2017, you thought now's the time I'm really keen to write a book about assessment? I think it definitely came out of the work I'd done on the curriculum in Seven Myths About Education. So Seven Myths About Education is very much about the curriculum, about the value of a knowledge-based curriculum. Mm-hmm. I was then both as an English teacher and then starting my work at ARC I really wanted to try and implement some of the ideas that I talked about in Seven Myths About Education. But what I kept coming up against was it's really hard to do anything about the curriculum, change anything about the curriculum until you address assessment. Yep. And again, that was particularly the case in England. We had this system of assessment called national curriculum levels, which mm-hmm. had been brought in in the early 1990s. And it wasn't just a kind of you know system of terminal summative assessments. It was designed to be a, a formative classroom assessment approach too. Okay. So it had an enormous impact on how people taught. And what I came to realize is unless you were going to do something about that assessment structure, it was really hard to change anything about the curriculum. So I think assessment, it wasn't really sort of, if you like, my first love, but it just felt like the key to unlock so much else in education. So I just got more and more interested in it. And that's how Making Good Progress happened. Fantastic. One of the places you start your book is making a distinction between two models of learning. The first is generic skills model and the second is the deliberate practice model. Could you tell our listeners what you meant by the generic skills model and the deliberate practice model and why that's where you really wanted to start your book? 
Yeah, so that's exactly, if you like, I'm saying that a lot of this work I did in assessment came out of the curriculum. Well, that generic skills deliberate practice kind of comes out of the, the curriculum. How do we learn? And I, I, I was arguing in the start making good progress that you've maybe got two different ways of conceptualising it. One way is to think of the skills we want to teach pupils, like creativity, critical thinking, problem solving, as being a kind of generic and transferable skills that you can teach pupils in one context and they will then have them to apply across a range of contexts. And in that sense, if you, if you, if you conceptualise it like that, then you're conceptualising skill almost as a bit like a muscle. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a general all-purpose thing that you can develop in, in one area and use in another. And if that's the case, it would lead to certain practices around assessments and practices around teaching. The alternative is to think of skill as something more that involves, that can be broken down. So this deliberate practice model is the idea that you have these big complex skills like creativity, critical thinking, problem solving. Mm -hmm. But when you break them down, they're composed of kind of smaller sub skills and pieces of knowledge. And as a result of that, then they're actually a bit more domain specific than we might think at first. So then actually you look at it and you think "Mm, creativity is not maybe something that I can develop in one area and transfer seamlessly to another context. Actually, I could be a very creative thinker in the context of mathematical problem solving. But my creative thinking in the area of, you know, the analysis of historical sources is actually not so well developed. Mm. So the deliberate practice model suggests that rather than kind of trying to exercise these general all purpose skills, you want to look at what the skills are composed of and work on those little building blocks instead. So those are, if you like, two different conceptions of how we learn complex skills. And what I then show is, is that all the evidence is on the side of the deliberate practice model. So really, there's very little evidence to back up this idea of generic skills. You know, all we know from research is the skills are domain specific. They do rest on bodies of knowledge and sub skills, and they do require practice at that small scale level to develop them. So if we are to believe that this deliberate practice kind of model of learning is the more accurate one, I guess we could say, what implications does that have Mm. for assessments and particularly the difference between formative and summative assessments? Yeah, so that's a great question. Again, that's something I've really tried to tackle early on in my book. So the point is, if you think that skill is something that is is generic and it is just developed by practice, then you don't really need there to be a difference between your formative and summative assessments. You can just say, well, I'll, I'll, I'll get the kids to, you know, practice being creative and the more they do that, the more they'll be creative. Mm. So the way they're going to learn to be creative is by practicing being creative. And, and that's great. We can have the same activities and the same assessments, both for the formative, like the steps on the way, and the summative, which is the end goal. But if you take a deliberate practice model, if you say, actually, I can break down this complex skill into smaller steps, then all of a sudden your formative and summative assessment are going to look very different. So I think for me that, you know, there's lots of ways of conceptualizing the difference between formative and summative assessment. One I like to think about is, the formative assessment is the journey, the summative is the destination. Mm. So the formative, the steps on the way, the summative is the end goal that you're working towards. So as I say, with the generic skills model, the steps on the way and the end goal look the same. With deliberate practice, the steps on the way look different to the end goal. The analogy I give, I give a sporting analogy at the end of Making Good Progress, which I think captures this quite nicely, which is that if you're going to run a marathon, and that's your summative goal, you know, that's your end target, you know, so you're, so you're training for it to run, to run a marathon. You don't start out by running 26 miles in your first training session. Mm. And in fact, in a lot of your training sessions, you'll be doing things that don't even look like, maybe in some training sessions, you'll do things that don't look like running. And even when you are running, you're not running 26 miles. So you've got this complex end goal you're working towards, 
but when you break it down, you break it down into things that look a bit different. The education example I often talk about, I was an English teacher, is essay writing. Mm. So essay writing is a really complex skill. Again, if it were a generic skill, if writing was something that, again, you just do writing and you get better at it, well, we wouldn't have to worry about the difference between formative and summative assessment. But when we realise that you break it down into these small steps, what goes to make up a good writer? Well, you know, you need a big vocabulary. People who write well tend to have a large vocabulary. So already there's something that looks quite different from just extended writing that you're going to need to develop someone's writing skill. Mm. And then there's also all the things about mechanics and getting those right. And again, some of those are not developed best through just constantly writing. You Maybe there'll be an activity where you read a passage and spot an error or edit a passage to correct the errors. Mm. So what I'm saying is, is that if we accept that complex skills can be broken down and they are domain specific and they consist of all these smaller sub substeps, then your formative assessment, your steps on the way, are going to look different to the end goal. So in terms of how that manifests itself in practice, again, as an English teacher, one of the things I found again and again that was quite frustrating is the recommendation for people to become better writers was all they need to do more writing. Then, you know, they just need to write more. If they write more, mm. they become better writers. But And people would look at exercise books and see lots of writing as being a mark of quality and a badge of honour. Look how much writing they've done. You know, isn't that high challenge? Mm. But my response was always, well, this is like, this is like going out in your marathon and trying to run, marathon training, trying to run 26 miles in your first training session. You know, there's so many errors that pupils are making. Those errors are just going to get embedded. It's mm. really hard to pick up all of the errors. It's really hard to zoom in and focus on where the weaknesses are. And if a pupil is, one of the reasons they're not writing well is because their vocabulary isn't big enough. Well, things like that are very hard to correct or develop within the context of just doing lots of writing. Mm -hmm. So it's about, I just think, trying to be a little bit more, if you like, more subtle about how skills develop and not just assume that we get better at something by doing it endlessly over and over again. For sure. Now, I'd like to delve a bit more into kind of assessment for learning here, because I was quite surprised to see that chapter one had the title, Why Didn't Assessment for Learning Transform Our Schools? Now, AFL is something I've been getting more and more interested in recently. And, you know, I had yeah. Dylan William on a few months ago, and I'm really looking forward to delving into his resources and using them with the senior maths team at my school this year. But I was wondering why, well, first off, why do you think assessment for learning is such a promising kind of an approach? But secondly, why hasn't it already transformed our schools? So I think assessment learning is a very promising approach. Assessment for learning is a very promising approach for a lot of the reasons Dylan William talks about in his writing, which is I do think good education, good teaching is about being really responsive. So it's about trying to recognise almost in as much as possible as real time. If your pupils are understanding, are staying with you and are on track, and if they're not doing something as quickly as possible about it. And the reason I think it's so important is because learning is invisible. So actually trying to see if your pupils are on track is really hard. So in other areas, like feedback's really important, whatever you're trying to do. But if you can't sort of see that feedback and sense that feedback, that feedback's invisible, it, it just makes it much more difficult. So I guess the promise of assessment for learning is it's going to improve your teaching because it gives you ways of seeing in as much sort of real time as possible whether your pupils are understanding what, what you're teaching them. Mm. I mean, Dylan William, uh, you know, has a great line where he talks about assessment being the bridge between teaching and learning. And he says, if pupils always learn what we taught, we wouldn't have to assess. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if we yeah. could just teach something and they learn it, we wouldn't need assessment. 
the reason we need assessment is because sadly people don't always learn what we teach them mm -hmm. and that's why we need assessment and we need summative assessment but it's also again the summative assessment is too late almost for you to do anything about mm. so the real promise of a performative assessment of assessment for learning is as i say that real-time information and dylan william has a line he said it in a tweet uh, a few years ago he said maybe a better name for formative assessment would have been responsive teaching mm -hmm. because it captures that aspect of almost like i say that real-time aspect a little bit he's also said i should put in here that actually responsive teaching wouldn't be a perfect name because it doesn't capture the role of the learner in assessment so responsive teaching doesn't cover it all mm -hmm. you've got to remember one of the things you're trying to do isn't just you trying to always calibrate where you are you're also trying to develop the pupil's ability to calibrate where they are mm. and to develop their understanding so it isn't just about the, the teacher knowing if the pupils learn it's about the pupil developing their ability to do that too but i still find that responsive teaching phrase very helpful yeah even though it doesn't capture everything because i think one of the reasons of responsive teaching is, is nice is the minute you use the word assessment i think people automatically assume something has to be sort of fairly bureaucratic it has to be something that's formalized and maybe captured in a spreadsheet. Mm. What I like about the phrase responsive teaching is if you're teaching a lesson and you give an explanation of something, if you see a pupil frown and as a result of that frown, you change your explanation and direct a question at that pupil, that is formative assessment mm. because you have changed what you were doing as a result of the feedback you got from the pupils. But, you know, I think we, we don't think that is formative assessment because it feels quite ephemeral. Mm -hmm. but, but it is. That's, for me, the heart of it. The heart of it is making changes in response to the information that you're getting. That's for me, is the promise of it. Then why didn't it work? I, I guess I do write here from a fairly English perspective, which is, I mean, my evidence it didn't work is it was really backed by a lot of not just money, but resource in England. And it was also a rare example of assessment learning of something that had quite good agreement, really, between government and teachers. And yet, in the sort of 20 odd years since it was introduced with, as I say, a great deal of consensus, England scores on, on PISA and various other metrics you can use have not really budged. Mm. So you would hope that something that powerful with that much support and that much resource behind it would have had more of an impact than that. Definitely. Can you kind of point to any reason why it didn't really take off? Yeah, I mean, what I say, I know, I mean, this is what I'm saying, it did take off. You know, and there's, I, I quote some stuff in the book where I talk about some TALIS surveys where something like 98% of English teachers say, I do assessment for learning. So my point is it did take off. People mm. did use it. It did have the backing. It didn't work or it didn't have the impact we would have hoped for. And, and I make a couple of arguments about why that is. One of them is that it got tied up to this generic skills model. Mm-hmm. So people thought, well, the way I'm going to give feedback, but the way I'm going to give feedback is, again, to give my writing example, I'm going to get the people to write uh, an extended piece of writing, and then I'm going to give them some feedback on that writing, and then they'll do another piece, and I'll give them some feedback on that. And again, my point is that's like trying to train for a marathon by running a marathon in every training session. Mm. So it was layered on top of a flawed understanding of how skills develop. That was one problem. The other problem is, uh, allied to this, is that, it was heavily tied up with a system of assessment that used kind of prose descriptions of performance or what you might call a rubric or a mark scheme. So what would happen again is pupils would write an essay or a piece of writing and you'd write a lengthy comment at the bottom of that piece of writing and that was the feedback. And the lengthy comment might say something like, you need to infer more insightfully because that was the kind of language that was on the national curriculum levels. Mm. 
the problem is that kind of feedback, one of the problems is it buys into that generic skills model. So it's saying that there are these skills that, again, you know, you can write an essay and you can get some feedback on that. And then the next essay you write, you're going to be better. Again, that generic skills model misses out so much. The other problem is, and Dylan William, again, is very good on this. He said he was once in a classroom where the teacher gave the feedback to the pupil. You need to be more systematic in planning your scientific investigations. And Dylan Williams said to the pupil, what do you understand by that? And the pupil said, I don't know. If I'd known how to be more systematic, I would have been so the first time. And I think, you know, that's a very flippant comment, but there's a lot of truth in it. Mm. And the first time I read that, I really cringed because I thought of the hours I'd spent as an English teacher writing comments that were that vague. Mm. And that was the kind of thing you were encouraged to do. That was seen as good AFL practice. In fact, you were encouraged to use the language of the mark scheme. That was what people would say to you. Mm. Uh, And maybe you wrote a pupil-friendly version of the mark scheme. But the point was you were trying to give the pupils that understanding of the mark scheme. And actually, what we know is quality is not communicated like that. So quality, it's sometimes very, very difficult to communicate quality in prose. Mm. So the problem with comments like that, as Dylan goes on to say, comments, comments like you need to be more systematic, you need to infer more insightfully, they are true. They're true but useless. They don't give pupils what they need to get better. And again, Dylan Williams says it's, it's like telling an unsuccessful comedian to tell funnier jokes mm. or be funnier. Yeah, it's true, but does it help? So the big issue, I think, why, why did AFL, why didn't it have the impact we hoped for? I think, one, it got laid on top of this generic skills model. And two, it got tied up with this really unhelpful method of giving feedback. Of, so the only way you give feedback is to, to write a comment. And writing a comment became like the, almost the highest form of feedback. Because people are saying, well, don't give people a grade because that's, you know, often they'll just look at the grade, not the comment. Mm. So, you know, don't even give them a grade with a comment, just give them the comment. But my argument, I say this in the book, is that a comment, if you're giving a comment that's taken from the mark scheme, the comment is effectively just a grade in prose. Yeah. <laughs> you haven't avoided the grade. Yeah. And what you really needed to do is to just rethink things more fundamentally and not even give the pupils that type of assessment in the first place but give them an assessment that cannot be graded because it is measuring something different. So again, instead of getting them to write an essay, you have a lesson where you teach them 10 new words and then give them a short quiz on how to use those 10 words. And then you're assessing if they've learned what you taught them. And you can't grade that. It doesn't come with a, with a, with a grade, but you can assess it. You can, you can measure it. Mm. And that is something that will lead over time to improvements in the grade. So... Yeah, that, that's why I think AFL didn't work. It was layered on top of a generic skills model and it got tied up with these prose descriptors, these mark schemes and rubrics. Fantastic. Thanks for sharing that, Daisy. I wanted to move now on to, to talk about two words. They're, they're two words that are often confused with each other and also two words that are generally misunderstood, but also two words that you spent quite a bit of time delving into in the book. These two words are validity and reliability. So I was wondering if you could start off by telling us, you know, what is validity and why does it matter enough for you to spend so much time on it in your book? Yeah, so validity as a concept, I mean, there's an enormous philosophical literature about validity and I'm not going to pretend for a minute, you know, I'm any kind of expert on that. I think what I'll do is I'll say what I think are, I'll give the really simple definition of it and then just say what, what, what I think the most practical implications of that are for teachers. Sounds perfect. So... The definition of validity I use is that validity is a test assessing kind of what you want it to assess. 
And the point is that the really classic thing that everyone says, well, again, there's a lot of debate in the this, but the, the definitions I use, I get one from Daniel Correx, one from Dylan William, is that validity is not a property of the assessment itself. It's a property of the inferences you make on the assessment. Hmm. So I guess the point is, to be, if I'm going to be blunt about it, if, if <laughs> don't blame the test, <laughs> blame the inferences you're making from it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So a good example is, say you give people a very wordy maths assessment. Mm. So there's lots of word problems in it. If an EAL pupil sits that assessment and doesn't do very well, can you assume from their low score that they don't understand maths? Well, you can't Mm. because it was very wordy. There was a lot of literacy requirements. So the point would be if you make the inference from that test that this pupil is not very good at maths, that inference is not justified based on the assessment. You can't validate that inference really based on the assessment. So the point is that test is not a bad test. It's not that the test is valid or invalid. The point is that the inference you're trying to make on that test is not valid. What is a valid inference that you could make? A valid inference that you could make is this pupil's literacy. You know, this pupil is not able to engage with, the, with these kinds of, of, of wordy math problems. Mm. So that would be a fair inference to make. But to make the inference that they don't understand fractions, they don't understand arithmetic as a result of performing poorly on this test would not be valid. So that's why I kind of say it's it's not about the test, it's about the assumptions and the inferences you're trying to make from it. Then the really big practical implication that that, that, that I take, I mean, that's one one good example, actually, the EAL example is a good practical example. But Mm -hmm. the bigger example I'm trying to draw from it as well is that ultimately, this can be a really tricky point to get across, but the actual scores children get on the test don't matter. What matters is if you can make inferences about those scores, about things that you're interested in. And the point is that there are lots of ways in which the scores on a test don't lead to the kind of, you know, don't let you make the kind of valid inferences you want to. Mm-hmm. So a really obvious way that the inferences you want to make can get compromised is through cheating. So an extreme example, let's say a pupil scores 100% on a test, you know, they do brilliantly, they get every question right. So your normal inference would be, oh, fantastic. They've done brilliantly well here. You know, again, it's a maths assessment. They're great at maths. This is fantastic. You know, they've maybe got the, 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 this top score. But again, if, if they've seen the questions and the answers before, clearly that inference is compromised. Mm-hmm. Actually, you can't be making that inference anymore. Okay, that's an extreme example. And, you know, that's extreme. But let's dial it back a bit. Okay, cheating's an extreme example. But the, the thing I try to talk about in the book is there are all these kinds of methods of, of things that are not cheating that are not illegal, but can have a similar distorting effect Mm. on your ability to make an inference about the pupil's test score. And a really obvious one, which we've all probably done ourselves (laughs) and can recognise, is cramming. Mm -hmm. So when you cram for a test the night before, you can often get a phenomenal score, but have you really learned the material? And again, let's say your third party comes along and looks at your test score and goes, wow, that's a great test score. This kid must be really good at whatever subject this is. And they really know their stuff. Actually, three month, in three months' time, you may recall nothing <laughs> mm. of that subject. So the point is, often the inferences we want to make from a test score tend to be longer term. We often want to make inferences where we're saying, as this people, we want to use a test score to, to understand if a people really understood something for the longer term. So I, I say, you know, employers in universities, when they look at a pupil's test score, they want to be able to know not just that on that afternoon in June, this pupil got this number of questions right, 
they want to know six months later, is this pupil capable of working in my office? Or is this pupil capable of starting a university course in literature? So they're interested in making really big inferences, maybe, as I say, three, six months further down the line. So the point is not the score you get at that moment in time. The point is, what does that score tell me mm. about what these people can do? And there are quite a few ways of achieving test scores, which break the validity of the inferences people typically want to make. They don't let you make those common inferences that we want to make from assessments. So for me, as I say, validity, big philosophical issue, but the really practical thing to take away is it's not about the score. It's about the meaning of the score. And there's ways you can achieve the score that lose the meaning. Okay. And I guess there you're really touching in a big way on the distinction between learning and performance. You know, cramming can lead to high performance, but not necessarily learning. So we really want to determine assessments that do capture what has and has not been learned. Does that mean we need to really be assessing people over longer periods of time? Well, no, I mean, no, so this is why I get wary with this as well. And I talk about this in the book. So it can seem obvious. I, I talk about this. You can seem obvious. So you're absolutely right. I'm talking about the distinction between learning and performance mm-hmm. and how cramming is a threat to validity. So it can seem obvious to then say, well, let's do space out assessments more. You know, mm-hmm. let's do, instead of having one big terminal assessment, let's have a modular assessment where it's spaced out so people don't feel the need to cram. And actually, we went down that route in England, and it you know, did not turn out. It actually had the completely opposite result. So you had these modules, and what would happen is pupils were just cramming for lots of individual modules. Mm. So it was actually worse than having one big terminal exam, because actually, if you have one big terminal exam, it's got a lot of content in. It's actually very hard to cram for. Mm. The problem with the modules is you, know, you have maybe six modules, and each module had a much, much smaller content. It's much easier to cram for a module like that. And then you had what you ended up with, and again, I quote Dylan William on this, is what he called, you know, negatively, he called it the banking model of assessment. Mm-hmm. And it was this idea that pupils would take a module, they'd get a score on that, and then it was like, well, I'll bank that so I can just forget it. You know, I've got, I've got my A grade on that, and that now has nothing to do with the next module I study, mm-hmm. and I'll bank that. And so, again, there was quite a bit of research that showed that this modular approach was leading to very bitty you know, sort of people end up with very bitty and not very holistic understandings of the topic they were studying. So I can remember certainly teaching a GCSE English when it was delivered for quite a lot of coursework and each individual coursework essay essentially did fall into this trap and what he was talking about of each one could be banked and then there were modules you could resit. And it was very problematic because you would have pupils, yeah, they would take their they study their essay on almost like a first chapter or one scene of a Shakespeare play or the first chapter of a novel and they would almost bank that and if that was done in the first term of year 10 you know we have two year GCSE courses in England you know there was then no requirement ever for them to go back and revise that and get the long-term learning for it so you know yes we do need to be promoting learning for the long term unfortunately the modular approach actually is much worse than the term of the exam approach now clearly people start cramming for term of exams is an issue the thing I say in the book is the way you're going to solve this issue ultimately is probably not through national assessment structures. Ultimately, it becomes a curriculum issue. So what you really need is you need to have a curriculum set up such that the constant opportunities for review and recap are built into it. Mm. So, you know, you're doing your essay on great expectations. And yes, you read great expectations, you understand that and you develop your understanding of it. But you're building in recap of that across the year or the two year course or however long it is. 
so that you're trying to solidify that understanding for the long term. It's not just something you, you learn and forget about. So I think assessment can help or hinder these things. And I think terminal assessments actually are a better option here than modular assessments. But ultimately, assessment structure on its own can't solve the problem. What you also need to support it is a very well-structured curriculum. Yeah, right. So what I was trying to get at when I suggested assessing over longer periods of time was kind of what you were talking about at the end there, more of a synoptic approach where the content that they're being tested on, say you've got year 11 and 12 and they both count towards some you know university entrance or something. Currently, what generally happens is you'd have a, a large summative assessment at the end of year 11 yeah. and then a large one at year 12 and they would cover different content. Would it help to reinforce learning for the year 12, end of year 12 assessment to also be able to draw on any of the content from year 11 as well? Yeah, totally. I mean, it, it should. It really should. Mm. Because if your year 11 only draws on year 11 and your tw- year 12 only draws on year 12, your problem is that banking model of assessment. The pupils will cram for the year 11 content and then complain, well, I forget that and then move on to the year 12. Mm. And, and whatever subject it is, that's a problem. It poses slightly different problems in different subjects, but whatever it is, it's a problem. And again, the risk is you've then got pupils who, because they've just constantly been sort of cramming for these smaller chunks, have nothing, no, no real overall, as you say, synoptic understanding. Mm-hmm. And I'm aware that look, if you have at the end of two years one synoptic exam, I'm aware of the issues that poses too. Mm-hmm. I'm not claiming that that's just doing that solves your problems. It doesn't, you know, but I would say that's the least worst option. And then could you have to combine it with the very good curriculum? Yep. So you actually set the students up for success along the way instead of just <laughs> making them cram. Exactly. Because of course there's a risk if you have a terminal exam at the end of two years. But a month before the final exam, people suddenly realise, well, I bet this doesn't work. <laughs> yep. And they've got, you know, they, they cram in that last bit of time. And so that's not good either. So, as I say, what I think you need is you do need to have a terminal exam with all the content in it. And then you need a good curriculum and you need to have those internal milestones for the pupils to be able to hit to check that they're on, on course. Mm. We've been talking about validity in exams. There was a, a point in the book that I found really interesting. It was in, to do with exam coaching. And you talked about how a little bit of coaching can actually increase validity of a test, but overcoaching can compromise the validity of the inferences you can make. What, how can this be? So this is an example I took from Daniel Corritz, Professor of Education Assessment at Harvard. And it's just a really straightforward example from him. So he would say, Let's imagine you've got, say, a nine-year-old who is studying, taking a maths exam. Let's imagine this nine-year-old is very, very good at arithmetic. He's an exam of arithmetic. So this is a nine-year-old, so they know lots of arithmetic, they're very good at it. So you should be seeing that they're doing well on this assessment. You make the inference that they're good, at, they're good at arithmetic. What's the problem? What's the risk? Well, let's say it's a multiple-choice question, multiple-choice exam. And you know what multiple-choice exams can look like? They can be quite a little bit fiddly mm. when you fill in the answer sheets. So, you know, maybe it's one of those bubble sheets where the pupils read the question they have to select the answer from the options, A to E. And then there's another sheet of paper where they have to colour in a little bubble, you know, mm-hmm. from A to E for each question. Mm-hmm. And maybe you'll be familiar with those. If you're not, actually, it probably does sound a bit confusing. And if you're not familiar with them, it is confusing. So let's imagine you've got a nine-year-old who's never seen this format of assessment before. So they're great at arithmetic, but they've never seen this particular assessment format. If you give them that, they're going to struggle to work out. And you don't tell them, you don't give them any help on how it works. They're going to struggle to work it out. Mm. And they might do things like colouring the wrong bubbles. It might just take them a long time to work out what they've got to do, in which case they don't get through as many questions as they might have done. Mm-hmm. So if they're not familiar with that format and it's a fairly fiddly format, 
they end up getting a low score. But the low score is not because they don't understand arithmetic. The low score is because they haven't understood the format of this assessment. So Corex's point is giving that pupil a little bit of coaching in how this assessment format works will increase the validity of the scores. Because once that pupil understands, oh, I've got to colour in the little bubble corresponding to the question. Oh, right. You know, so say you talk them through a couple of examples, then they get it. And all of a sudden, their score is going to leap up mm. because they've understood the format. And actually, that score will be a more valid reflection of their underlying ability and arithmetic, which is what you were trying to, that was the inference you wanted to make. Mm-hmm. So a little bit of coaching in assessment formats helps the pupils and it will give you a more valid response. The problem is, you know, that's fine giving them like, you know, maybe 15, 20 minutes. How does this format work? The problem is if you then start giving pupils, and, you know, unfortunately this is what has happened in the UK and the US, if you turn that into hours and hours and hours of instruction (laughs) and it becomes about here's how you cheat the multiple choice format, these are the little tips and tricks, (laughs) Mm. then you've got pupils who are really well versed in the structure of a multiple choice question, but actually they don't really have the underlying understanding of arithmetic. Mm. I mean, we see this happen a lot in England. There's some really quite fiddly, GCSE exams and there's one I talk about there's a history exam the GCSE exam which is on I think Germany something like Germany 1919 to 1945 something like that and I've looked at some of the really popular textbooks for this course and one of the things I say is about for a couple of them there's a textbook where about a third of the textbook is on how to answer the eight mark question how to answer the four mark question Mm. how to answer the 16 mark question well, you know, how to answer the 16 mark question really has nothing to do, you know, it's not history. It's this particular hoop the example would have set up for you to jump through. And there may be their reasons why they do that. I'm not, you know, knocking that. Like exams are difficult. You have to come up with standardised approaches. I get that. But, you know, the idea that you then end up devoting a third of your textbook to that particular approach, which as soon as that child is completed the GCSE, is of no use to them ever again. You know, the A-level doesn't have that kind of question. The university undergraduate courses don't have that kind of question. And it's not the kind of thing that, you know, in real life Mm. is of any value. And the other thing is, is that approach, what happens in that crowds out wider understanding of the historical era. So the other thing I know about these textbooks is they have, I think I noticed that in, in one of them, this Germany one, there was one mention of Kaiser Wilhelm and no mentions of Bismarck. Mm-hmm. And I, you think, well, what is more important to understanding Germany 1919-1945? Is it more important to understand the 16-mark question or is it more important to know who Kaiser Wilhelm is? Right? Mm-hmm. So this is the problem. The problem is that a little bit of coaching will increase the validity. But when I say little bit, I really mean a little bit. Once you get into what we've seen a lot of, as I say, in America and, and the UK, real sort of hours and hours of coaching, you're then compromising the validity because pupils are potentially maybe ending up with quite good scores because they've been coached very heavily to these fiddly rubrics. But that doesn't really reflect their real underlying understanding of the topic in question. So that's the issue that the sort of, you know, the the limited upside of of coaching and the big downside when you go into it too heavily. Mm. We might explore this a little bit more, Daisy, because I think it's a really important issue because what we essentially have is a positional arms race in relation to exam coaching. And teachers, I guess, are in a position where when you do have exams 
you know, nationwide exams like this, they are actually disadvantaging their students if we think about performance rather than actual learning. Yeah. They're disadvantaging their students if they don't spend exorbitant amounts of time on this kind of coaching. So where does the buck stop? What do we do? Well, that depends. You're saying they're disadvantaging their pupils if they don't spend exorbitant amounts. Now, I'll question that. I'm not sure I go along with that. Uh, to a large extent, it depends on the exam structure. So actually, one of the reasons I'm quite critical, particularly of this GCSE history exam structure, is because it is so fiddly and it is quite pedantic, then there is an extent to which you kind of do have to coach kids to it with quite a bit of time because it's so fiddly, mm -hmm. right? So when you get badly designed exams, you do end up, then I agree with what you just said. So yeah. what you just said there, I agree if the exam is really badly designed. And I think, I don't know the Australian system, but definitely the English system, there are some, I think, examples of where that has happened. Varies from subject to subject here, yeah. Yeah, and I would say the same here in England too, actually. It varies from subject to subject. So there are some subjects where you think this is such a badly designed exam. A pupil who is brilliant, so then history often comes up as one of these, but a pupil who is brilliant in history could end up doing quite badly on this exam because the rubric is so pedantic and picky and, you know, requires certain hoops. On the other hand, a pupil who is not very good at history would end up could ace it because they've got, they've been taught the, the sort of the code to crack. Mm-hmm. So when the exam's badly designed, yes, what you just talked about is a problem. And I speak to teachers all the time who say, I would love to teach my pupils in this more rounded way, but I can't do it because of the exam. However, you know, that's not true for every exam. Yep. And I would say there are, you know, other exams that are better designed. And there are even some exams which may not be particularly brilliantly designed, but even so, with a lot of exams, there's still a real limit to what you're going to get from the exam coaching. You know, there really is a limit. Mm. so you know that, that multiple choice thing i talked to you about like yeah 20 30 minutes of coaching in that will get you so far but actually i see people with multiple choice questions going well what you've got to do is you've got to eliminate the most obvious wrong answers and do that and it takes you so far but actually if you devoted that same amount of time to proper instruction that would take you a lot further yeah right so look there are the extreme examples of badly designed exams where this is a problem but actually for the majority of exams, I, I really think if you devoted the time to proper instruction, it would give you bigger payoffs than devoting the time to trying to crack the code of the rubric. Mm. I do think that. So, look, when you said where the buck stops, it depends. You know, and I can see both sides. It depends on the structure of the exam. But I would say to any teacher, wherever possible, have a look at it. And I would hope that in most exams, proper instruction will actually give you quite a good return on investment. And in most exams, I think the proper instruction will give you a better return on your investment of time than just just trying to play to the exam scheme. Totally. And I, I guess it also depends on other factors like, you know, the foundational knowledge level of the students that you're working with right. um, and how yeah. far you can take them in the, the amount of yeah. time you've got with them. That's true. And another thing I say in the book as well is that, and Corrett says this, is that when you're expected to deliver really extreme short-term results like big, big improvements over a short period of time, those results are quite difficult to achieve, actually, mm. legitimately. So one of the things Corex talks about, about why you've had so much of this coaching, is probably some of the coaching does lead you to, in a short term, it might you know improve scores more than proper instruction. Yep. If you've only got, say, three or six months to improve things. And again, if you're starting from a very low base. So there are other reasons why teachers, I think I understand, turn to turn to um, 
those kind of approaches and Corrett writes very well about them and I'd say it's difficult and when you get these extreme you know unrealistic I think attempts to improve grades by really huge amounts over short periods of time well you know you've got to wonder about obviously that's going to cause some problems in the system and I mm. think Corrett has written very well about that yeah totally so that was validity <laughs> let's um <laughs> tell us a little bit about reliability and and can you have reliability without validity or validity without reliability yeah, so again, big sort of philosophical debate here and not just philosophical, you know, lots of technical literature on this too. The, the line I take in the book is that reliability is a prerequisite of validity. So reliability is a necessary but not sufficient condition of, of validity. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, remember validity is, I want to make an inference, can I make this inference? Am I justified in making this inference about this test score? Let me give you an example. Here's a pupil who's taken a, a multiple choice exam about writing. So it's all about the mechanics of writing and they have to correct certain sentences and come up with what the correction should be, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So let's say a pupil's taken an exam like that and they do very well on it. And then a very interesting question is, are you justified? Are you justified? Can you make a valid inference about their writing skill? And this is a kind of bit of a debate in the literature because some people would say, well, yeah, you can. Other people would say, well, no, all that test is telling you is that if you answer multiple choice questions, they could be a terrible writer. But what is true about that assessment is it's probably quite easy to mark it reliably. Mm-hmm. So multiple choice questions are easy to mark reliably. And what do I mean by reliability is just the consistency of scores that people get. So reliability just refers to the consistency of measurement over, over time. So I talk about three different sort of threats to reliability in the book, and these are three sort of classic threats to reliability. One problem is marker reliability. So let's say a pupil sits an exam. If I photocopy their answer sheet, give it to two different markers, will the markers come back and give it the same score? Now, if it's a multiple choice paper, the markers are almost always going to come back and give it the same score. Mm -hmm. Right? If it's an essay, the markers hardly ever are going to come back and give it exactly the same score. So basically, it's much easier to reliably mark closed questions like multiple choice questions than it is to reliably mark open questions like essays. Mm -hmm. So one source of unreliability is marker unreliability. Uh, another source of unreliability is sampling unreliability. Uh, the way I like to conceptualize this is when you're, you know, when you're going to, you're waiting to sit an exam and you think, oh, I really hope this question turns up. I really hope this question doesn't turn up. Yep. <laughs> if the question you really hope turns up, turns up, <laughs> and the one you really don't want to turn up, turns up, you're going to do better than if it was the other way around. Yep. So no exam can feature every single question. And the particular sample it ends up focusing on you, you might get lucky or unlucky. Mm-hmm. And that's going to affect your score. Yep. So that's another factor in unreliability. And then I've had a brain fade and forgotten the third factor. Okay. <laughs> Actually, just a quick story on that one. I did, a, I did an exchange in Denmark and one of the subjects I was doing, the exam was an oral one. Right. It was really quite interesting. I walked into the examination room. There were three people sitting on the panel yeah. and there were 16 cards face down on the desk. Right. Representing the 16 main topics we talked about. And all this exam was, was I picked a card, flipped it over, and then right, had to yeah. talk about that part of the topic yeah. and was quizzed about that. And that was the whole assessment. So that's a real good example of yeah. how um, sampling yeah. reliability can have a massive impact. Yeah, exactly. Like if you'd picked a different one of those 16 cards, oh my goodness, like how different could your score have been? Totally. Yeah, it's right. The, the first thing that often causes unreliability is, and again, we'll all be familiar with this, but student performance on the day. Uh-huh. So you wake up with a headache. Or your bus is late, your bus to the exam was late, or you know something happens that throws you off your stride. You're just not feeling well. Yep. So that is, and that's 
yeah, yeah, we absolutely right. So those kind of things can have a big impact as well. So there's lots of things can get in the way of consistent scoring, of it being a consistent sort of measure. So almost the student often the student performance in the day is one that's really out of control. The sampling again, the way you can decrease the, the problem of, of, of unreliability there is your example. If you had to flip over one of the sixteen cards, mm-hmm. suppose you'd have to flip over eight of them. Mm-hmm then you're reducing the role of, of chance in that and, and increasing the reliability. So lots of factors that affect reliability. And then to go back to what I was saying, why does this, what, what impact, what's the link with validity? We'll go back to my example of the writing exam. So you've assessed people's writing through a bunch of multiple choice questions. So they've never actually had to do any writing. You've just assessed if they can kind of spot errors in, in other people's writing, if you like, and identify a multiple choice question. Mm-hmm. Now, what's the good thing about that? assessment it's very reliable in terms of both the sampling and the marking because it's sampling from quite a wide range because you can ask a lot of multiple choice questions in a short period of time and the marker reliability will be very low you know you can machine mark multiple choice questions to a very high degree of reliability Mm -hmm. so you say up fantastic i've got amazing reliability here okay and then pushback would be well yeah you've got amazing reliability but can you make a valid inference from those assessments because they're not involving any writing? You know, it's not really a direct assessment of the thing you want to really make the inference about. Mm. Now, actually, a lot of the research shows you can make children's writing, you know, the way they respond to multiple choice questions does give you a pretty good read through to their writing. But the problem you have is what we were talking about before. If it's a high stakes assessment, you run into these problems of people coaching pupils excessively to multiple choice questions. So understandably, people have said, well, look, I'd like to, you know, maybe as well as giving my pupils some multiple choice question on writing, can I not give them some writing to do? Mm. And you say, okay, great, well, let's do some writing. That's going to give us a more direct assessment of the construct. We're not going to get bogged down in how to eliminate the wrong answer. Okay, so you give them a piece of writing. What's the problem now? How are you going to mark it? And all of the research on writing shows it's incredibly hard to mark reliably. So you give the same story or the same letter or the same essay to 10 different markers. And even if they've been trained and they've got a rubric, they very rarely are all going to come back to you with exactly the same mark. Mm-hmm. And you might say, well, why does that matter? Doesn't it matter that I've actually just got a good assessment? Well, why it matters is, is say, take the extreme example, say the 10 markers come back to you, you know, say this essay has been marked at 40. If those 10 markers come back to you with a random scattering of marks between 0 and 40, you have no idea how well that pupil has done. Mm. So sometimes people say, well, it's a more valid assessment because it involves writing. But if the marking is so unreliable that you have no idea how the pupil's done, it isn't a valid assessment anymore. Yep. Because you can't make any inferences or any, any really any inferences you want to make if the results are coming back so in such a random manner. So... That's why reliability matters. And that's why people sometimes say, oh, reliability and validity are in a trade-off. And they kind of are, but they aren't really. Corrett's writes about this very well when he uses that example of the writing multiple choice question, is that people would say, oh, well, I don't mind lowering my reliability a bit if it increases my validity. But if you lower the reliability by too much, mm. you also lose all of the validity. Yep. So you can't think of it as like two dials that you push one up, you push the other down. Actually, if the reliability dips so low, you, you haven't got validity either. So the challenge is, can you get methods that are reliable and valid? You know, can you push both dials up? And actually, that's what we think comparative judgment does. It gives you really quite reliable measures. 
but it's also of the kinds of what types of writer that people want typically want to assess. So that's the relationship between them. It's, it's, it's complicated. Yeah, totally, totally. Well, hopefully now we've got the language to delve a little bit deeper. I just before we jump onto CJ. I really want to talk a little bit about probably the most commonly used, well, one of the most commonly used assessment tools in schools, really baked into our kind of educational psyche, and that is rubrics. Listeners might have heard me get ribbed by Dylan William for sending him a rubric, <laughs> but I would love to know from your point of view, what are some of the limitations or, or what leads to some of the limitations of rubrics? Yeah, so I'm not a fan of rubrics. Let's analyse them in two ways, what the flaws are, the problems with them. So let's go back to what I said at the start about formative and summative assessments. With a formative assessment, you're trying to assess the steps on the journey. With a summative assessment, you're trying to assess the end goal. Mm -hmm. So often with a formative assessment, what you want to do is you want to come up with something that is giving you some helpful next steps because it's the steps on the way. So you want to work out where my pupils' strengths and weaknesses, what do they need to do next? You know, what's the feedback? I need some action. What am I going to do different? What do they do differently? So that's the aim of a formative assessment. Mm -hmm. And Dylan William, actually, in a, in a 1996 paper with Paul Black, he talks about this as being consequences. He talks about the aim of formative assessment is you want to get some consequences. What are you going to do differently as a result of this? Mm -hmm. So do rubrics provide an effective way of giving you helpful next steps or consequences? And my argument is no, they don't. And my argument, my reason why they don't is, goes back to what I said before, is that often what they're giving you is true but useless. Mm -hmm. so you will give the pupils a comment like you need to infer more insightfully you need to make a scientific investigation more systematic you need to use tense more consistently but what does the people do with that how do they behave differently as a result of that and the point is that the language on rubrics is not designed to provide that level of next steps or that those consequences and that's because those rubrics are written at this very generic skill level uh, they're just trying to describe good performance. Mm -hmm. Rubrics are not trying to analyze what makes good performance. They're descriptive, not analytic. So then if you then use them to try and give pupils a next step, they don't have that within them. They're just describing what different types of performance look like. Mm -hmm. So you end up in this ridiculous situation where you know, maybe one pupil's getting the feedback, you need to infer more insightfully, and another pupil's getting the feedback, you need to infer with more flair. You know, like what does what are they going to do as a response uh, a response to that? Mm. What they might actually need, what actually does make you better at inferring, is having a bigger vocabulary. So actually, the real action step, the next thing they should be doing, or the next thing you as a teacher should be doing, might involve something around some work on vocabulary that you as a teacher might say. Well, my next step is I'm going to plan some more lessons where we're going to do some explicit teaching of vocabulary, maybe of, of prefixes and suffixes. And that this is something that over time will lead to them being able to infer better. Mm -hmm. But that is not something that you're going to get from a rubric. Because as I say, a rubric is not looking at the deeper causes. It's just looking at the surface descriptions. Okay, so you might say, well, all right, but if a rubric is describing performance, isn't it then useful summatively? So what is the point of a summative assessment? And again, if I go back to that paper from Dylan and William Paul Black from 1996, they talk about uh, the point of a summative assessment being to give you a shared meaning. So the summative assessment is this end goal that we're all working towards. It's the final assessment of a complex skill. And often what you want to get from it is a shared meaning. And by that, you want some kind of grade or scout score or reporting mechanism mm -hmm. that has a, a consistency across contexts. That it isn't just something that means something in your classroom or your school. It's something that's got a national, in some cases, an international meaning. So in order to get that shared meaning, 
you've got to come up with a system of reporting, as I say, that has that consistency. So when it comes to summative assessments, the consistency of meaning and shared means become really important. Now, do rubrics give you those? Again, not really. And again, it's largely because prose is not designed to give you that level of precision. Mm-hmm. And the example I give of this is, let's take a descriptor like, can compare two fractions to identify which is larger. Now, that seems like a very precisely defined descriptor and something that surely you will be able to say if a people has met that descriptor or not. But what we find is when you define that descriptor as a question, it really depends on how you define it. So if you define that descriptor as what's bigger, you know, one-seventh or six-sevenths, most pupils get that right. Mm -hmm. The majority of pupils get that right. If you define that descriptor as what's bigger, five-sevenths or five-ninths, most pupils get that wrong. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the way you define a descriptor has an enormous impact on whether a pupils get it right or not. And that's an example from a, of a math descriptor, the kind of statement on a math rubric that's quite precise. And it's still a problem there. But it's even more of a problem when you start to get into the humanities, into English, the kind of rubrics I used to deal with had sentences like, can use vocabulary with originality and flair. Mm-hmm. So how are you meant to make sure that that statement is being defined in the same way by thousands of teachers, hundreds of thousands of pupils? And as I said, the issue you've got, people just say, well, can't you define the descriptor more precisely? The fact is, it all depends. It's not, you know, you can't, there's no way. And again, there's a philosophical literature on this too, on the ability of prose to communicate precision in that way. And it's just really not possible to do. It all depends on how you define it as a question. Mm. And when you define it as a question, tiny changes in the surface detail of the question have a massive impact on how difficult the pupils find the question. So if you ask a group of eight-year-olds, what's uh, 11 plus three? Most of them get it right. If you ask them what's three plus 11, many, many fewer of them get it right. Mm. And why is that? 11 plus three, they go 11, 12, 13, 14. Three plus 11, they go three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. They start running out of fingers. Yep. Okay. So even something as trivial as reversing the order of the numbers in a sum has a really non-trivial impact on how pupils find that question. So when you're coming to define a shared meaning and the consistency is really important, the rubrics cannot give you that precision. Mm. So they're not helpful and they're not precise. That's the problem with them. Yeah, right. Another point you made that was really like a light bulb going off for me was that rubrics constrain creativity. Yes. Can you, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, again, so you pushed further on from that. This problem of rubrics not being precise enough is an acknowledged problem. People realise it's an issue and they realise, my goodness, I've got all these people marking essays with these rubrics and they're all coming up with completely different marks. So then people think, well, what can I do to solve this? So they think, well, let's make the rubric more specific. Let's be really precise about what we mean. And so they do things like, and again, this is a real example from England, they will say, well, good writing, what should good writing include? So they say, well, yeah, okay, a statement like can use vocabulary of originality and flair is very vague. So let's be more precise. So they say things like, okay, good writing, when we're marking this writing, you know, in order to get this grade, it has to have a hyphen or it has to have, you know, so it needs to display evidence and use hyphens accurately or it will need to use a fronted adverb. You know, good writing will use a fronted adverb. So what happens then is in order to solve the problem of rubrics not being precise enough, people make them hyper-specific. And the problem when you make them hyper-specific is then... You, that's when you run into this problem is they then have this enormous impact on teaching and learning is pupils then end up writing very stereotyped responses. 
because you have defined so precisely what you want in the essay or the response. But the problem with this is, is that the whole point of often having an open task is you want people to respond in an open way. And the whole point of an open task like writing is that people should respond in a different way. If you wanted a closed task, you could have gone back to the multiple choice question, right? Mm. So you've come up with an open task in order to allow people to be more creative. But then you come up with this hyper-specific mark scheme, which doesn't let them be creative. And then the risk you get there, and I've literally seen this happen the last few years, is Pupils can write very great creative responses that are really engaging and fluent to read. But if they don't use a front end verbial, they can't, can't get the top mark. Mm. And then what happens is people realize that. So in the lesson, they're coaching very much to say, you need to be using these features. And some of the things I've seen in the last few years, and again, there's not just me, there's a whole series of blogs and newspaper articles about this. Because of this statement about the hyphen, I had one teacher who said to me, she tells all of her pupils, every time you write a story, your main character should be called Mary Jane. (laughs) Because the fact that they're called Mary Jane will prove you can use a hyphen. Wow. Right? And then you get the example, lots of pupils now, they will use front-end verbials, but they use them and they don't make a lot of sense. So you get sentences like, forgettably, he crept through the darkness. Mm -hmm. And if you're marking in your feature spot, you go, tick, they've used a front-end verbial. And you go back and you think, but hang on a minute, it doesn't make sense. Whereas the pupil who's written something really engaging and creative, hasn't used a front end verbial, isn't doing as well as the pupil who's writing a nonsense sentence that has a front end verbial. Another example, spelling. The rubric incentivizes spelling, so it says pupils must spell all or most words correctly. So it's a very high bar for spelling. What happened with that? You ended up with lots of pupils. Essentially, the washback effect that had on teaching and learning was teachers and pupils being encouraged to use less ambitious vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Because if you try to go for more ambitious words and get them wrong, you're going to be penalised. But if you only ever spell very basic words and get them right, even if they're very basic, you know, you're going to get that standard. Mm. So the problem with hyper-specific rubrics is they lead to very stereotyped, very coached, very mechanical responses, and they penalise creative out-of-the-box responses. And the whole point should be of an open task is to meant to be to encourage the open response. Mm. So you end up defeating the purpose of your open task in the first place. So that's the real problem with hyper-specific rubrics. And the other thing is, is they don't actually increase the reliability by all that much either. Mm. You still have the issues of reliability. So you end up really with the worst of both worlds. It's quite an unreliable assessment, and it's massively constraining creativity and isn't really an open task anymore. So I always say you're better off going with a closed assessment that would give you really high reliability and then an open assessment where you tolerate a little bit less reliability, but it's genuinely open. Mm. Wow. So there's teachers here listening and they're just, they're considering opening their filing cabinet, pulling out their rubrics and burning them all. <laughs> should, is this what teachers should be doing? Daisy, or is, is there actually a place for rubrics somewhere in education? So I, I suppose I do feel I've got a bit hard line on this. <laughs> you know, I, I don't feel there is. I suppose a couple of years ago, before I came across comparative judgment, I said, well, look, you know, let's have some maybe fairly high level generic ones just as a guide that are probably, you know, not as bad as these type of specific ones. Mm-hmm. But since I've come across comparative judgment, I think you can even move away from those. People then say to me, well, if you don't have a rubric, how do you communicate quality? 
And what I would like to lead towards is communicating quality. And maybe this is something that is maybe, you know, a halfway house or some of the other features that are in brick. Mm-hmm. I would like to move towards the idea of annotated exemplar booklets. Okay. So instead of having like an A3 sheet of paper with the rubric and these are the standards you should meet, instead you have a booklet of pupil responses. And the booklet is annotated with the features that make each essay the standard that it is. Okay, mm-hmm. so you've got a booklet, and the first essay maybe is you know superb, and the pieces in it are highlighted, but parts of that essay are highlighted to illustrate what is so good about it. So if I go back to my front adverbial example, maybe in that excellent example, you know you would highlight a front adverbial and you would say this is a front adverbial, it's an excellent use of one, and it gives the sentences variety, but. What would be good is, you know, that you're actually exemplifying a really high quality example, which gets you around this problem of the forgettably incorrect and darkness type issue, right? Mm. And you could you could highlight that one as well. well quite. So yeah. you, in one from, you know, halfway through the booklet, you might then highlight that and say, look, you know, this is a front step error, but it's not really making any sense. Yep. So one of the issues here is you've got to make sure it's, it's making sense. So I think if you're going to have a rubric, then it's got to be backed up with some form of exemplification. Mm. Like the rubric on its own floating free is not going to communicate quality. So for me, as I say, the way I'd like to work towards is that the rubric would be with some form of exemplification. And, and, and as I say, ideally, maybe just the annotated example booklet on its own. That would be what I thought would be a, a better approach. Got it. I right, now I'd like to talk a little bit about exams because Exams are often criticized, especially large scale exams, you know, sat in exam halls and things like that. And there are two criticisms of exams or these kind of large scale assessments that I've heard a lot of teachers kind of make and a lot of parents make, in fact, and they're ones that you address in the book. So I just wanted to give you an opportunity to respond to them. Now, the first one is how exams are pretty much in all cases when they're large scale, they're always normative. They're always a competition ranking students against each other. And the question people ask is, why does it have to be a competition? Why can't we just have a standard and we say the students either achieve that standard or a set of standards or they don't? Um, and the second criticism is, you know, in real life, in your job, you don't sit in a hall with no resources just writing an essay in an hour. So these exams don't actually reflect real life experiences. So why do we have to have or do we have to have these two features of large scale assessments? Okay, so two massive questions there. Let's take the first one about the, the, the norm referencing. So I think there's a real misconception about a lot of things in norm referencing. So the first thing is important to distinguish between is between cohort referencing and norm referencing. Now, I think the people, the thing that people really have a beef against, and I would say I understand why they have the beef against it, is cohort referencing. And cohort referencing is when you say, right, we're going to have a year group or however many people sit this exam, and essentially, the number of top grades is fixed, or the number of every grade is fixed. Mm. So, you know, 10% get the top grade, 10% get the second grade, whatever, you know, however it's broken up. And the beef people have get with that is, well, year on year, pupils could be getting better and better and better, but they're still fixed the top number of grades that can be given. So even if everybody's doing better and everybody's hitting a certain standard, we're restricting the top number of grades. Now, that system where you have a cohort sitting an exam and you give a fixed number of grades each, and that, that's cohort referencing. Mm-hmm. And I understand the, the issue with that. Norm referencing is actually slightly different 
and actually doesn't have, I think, the main beef that people have with that. So norm referencing is actually when you standardise an assessment on like a prior group of pupils. So I'm, like, I mean, I'm simplifying here, but you, maybe you have an assessment and you test it out on, say, 10,000 pupils and you set the standards. So you, you do set maybe, right, okay, well, what, what did the top 10% of, of these 10,000 pupils get? And you set that as a mark. And then you give the assessment to a new cohort and you say, right, well, how many of you can hit that mark? So when that new cohort take the assessment, actually, theoretically, more of them could hit that mark. You know, there is nothing to stop, theoretically, all of them hitting that mark. Mm -hmm. So that's norm referencing. So norm referencing, in that sense, actually doesn't fix the top number of marks to be to be achieved. And norm referencing is often what you get. Again, I'm not completely au fait with the Australian system, but a lot of there's a lot of norm reference tests you can like buy off the shelf. Mm -hmm that will allow you, so a lot of reading age tests, for example, are norm reference. And you can give those to your pupils and see where they're doing relative to this prior group of pupils who have, that the test has been normed on, okay? Mm -hmm. So just to distinguish between those two is really important. So then to come back to the cohort referencing, the thing that people have the problem with is, well, the number of top grades is fixed. And I admit, you know, I, I totally, totally get the issue with that. I'll point out a couple of things. Again, not massive familiarity with the Aussie system, but there are very few systems in the world that, that I understand it that, that actually do have a, a cohort reference system like that. So England don't anymore. And I think, you know, even back in with the old O level in the eighties, you know, even even then it probably wasn't sort of quite as cohort reference everyone thought. But 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 you know, you've got to go back a long way now to find a time when the English system did even have features of, of, of that system. What most systems do is they use some form of statistics to help set the standard. Mm -hmm. And that is really valuable. You know, you kind of do have to have some form of statistics to meet the standard. And the reason why you need that is, so, all right, and then people say, well, people often say, well, the alternative to normal is criterion referencing. And criterion referencing is so much fairer because you set a standard and if people reach that standard, then, you know, they, they've reached it. So why can't we just be clear about that? And I do like that approach. I, I do. But I think that what has been problematic about the way that approach has been interpreted is it's often been bound up with these rubrics and these prose descriptors that I've talked about. Mm. So... I like the idea of criterion referencing as long as it doesn't depend on prose descriptors and rubrics and mark schemes. And one of the problems with, as I said, the way criterion referencing has happened in practice is it has turned into, here is a standard I'm going to define in words, <laughs> like, you know, can use vocabulary with originality and flair. And if my pupils meet that standard, they've met the standard. And if they haven't, then they haven't. Mm -hmm. And this is problematic for a number of reasons. So one is it's very hard to get that consistent definition of the standard over time. So countries that have gone fully down this route of prose criterion referencing have run into some big issues because it's really hard from one year to the next to ensure that the standard is consistent because of all the reasons I've talked about. Yeah. Okay. So that's one issue. And I think New Zealand had some problems with that when they tried to introduce it. They had enormously fluctuating pass rates from one year to the next when they went down this route. That's one issue. The other issue with the, this approach of saying we should just see if they've hit the standard is it suggests that pupil performance comes in neatly prepackaged categories. So it suggests that there is this standard you can reach. And superficially, that seems very compelling. So I remember talking to a minister in England who said, well, the thing is, you know, at age 11, we just want to know, can the pupils read or write? But actually, when you think about reading or writing, and I'm not trying to be hair splitting and, 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 and philosophical here, but mm. when you think about reading and writing, 
actually, is it a binary? You know, is there a cut where you say, well, this side of the line you can read or write, but you, this side you can't? Where would you draw that line? Mm. And the point is, for all complex skills, pupil performance is on a continuum. It doesn't come in these neat sort of discrete categories. So the problem with saying, well, look, there's a standard, we're just as long as they meet that standard, they should get the standard. It's often just an arbitrary line on a continuum. So that's an, an, an issue with that approach. So what I would say you need is, um, the term I'm keen on using, and Dylan William again talks about this, is construct referencing, which you might see as being like maybe like the next step on. And the idea of a construct referencing is instead of referencing to a prose criterion, which is very vague and suggests that pupil performance is discrete, you in some ways attempt to pin to a, to a construct. And I think in some, to some extent, you know, maybe that's what we're trying to do with comparative judgment is that we've got, you know, because we've got so much exemplification of people's work that you can say, well, that it's sort of construct. We don't have a rubric. We don't have prose criteria, but we do have these examples of people's work that we can try and try and pin to. And so then if you do that, and if you can start to get very sophisticated with statistics, it is possible to have a system where theoretically every pupil could achieve certain mark. You're not capping the marks in any way. And the people who do this really well, actually, are PISA. You know, PISA have designed, and, and TIMS, have designed quite sophisticated systems where they're able to track improvements across systems and over time. And what you do realise when you dig into anything in PISA is it's obviously it's a very sophisticated statistical model. Mm-hmm. So it is possible to do this. And as I say, PISA and TIMS do, do do it. It is harder for certain reasons to do it in national exam systems. But I would say the English system is certainly moving towards uh, that approach. So one of the innovations that's coming with the English system is they've brought in this sample test. And this sample test is designed to tell if year on year there really are improvements happening because it's the same test being used every year. So basically every year, sample of pupils in, I think, just before they sit their GCSEs, they're going to sit this different exam, which is secret, you know, nobody sees it. (laughs) And the point is that that exam is going to stay the same year on year. It has no impact on the pupils, you know, it's reported on their CV, they don't get their results. It's a test for the test setters to see, are these pupils doing better than pupils the year before on exactly the same test? And so the idea would be if they really are getting better, you'll be able to pick it up. And then if, if that's happening, that is then giving you evidence that you, you should be able to increase the number of top grades, if you like, in the national system. Yeah, okay. So I think the point I'm trying to make is that these things are really complex. To get to the point we all want, which is a system where you can sensitively measure improvements over time, you do need a fairly sophisticated statistical model behind the feet. And you can't just rely on saying, have they hit this standard or not? Can they read or write? You know, you need some numbers behind the scenes. You need to be setting up some, you know, fairly complex systems to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know enough about the Australian system, how far that's down, down the route of that, but I would say I think the English system is moving in that direction. So the top number of grades, it does reflect underlying improvements in performance. But what I would say, it is difficult. And as I say, it does require some sort of very well-designed systems. Does that answer the question? Yeah, that's super helpful. I would love to dive into the construct reference stuff more, but I think I'll have, we'll have to leave that yeah. for another podcast. Yeah. Okay. And your, your other point, so that was one point you said people don't like about national systems. The other point was, mm-hmm. why does it all have to be in an example, et cetera, et cetera? And I think that goes back to what I said earlier about a shared meaning. 
You're trying to create a shared meaning. And the problem is, again, if you don't have standard conditions, it's very hard to create that shared meaning. So again, systems that have experimented with creating more real-world environments, like coursework, if you like, non-exam assessment, they very frequently run into the problem of some pupils essentially Mm -hmm. getting more help (laughs) than others. There are these genuine, very then very grey areas about, well, what constitutes legitimate help or not? So the reason why you kind of often with exams, you know, you do need to set them with these quite tight restrictive rules that are not found in the real world is in order to get a consistent meaning Mm. across many, many different pupils. And whilst I agree with you that obviously in the real world, you know, if you're in a workplace and you're typing an email, you can use spell check in the dictionary. Actually, a lot of work in the workplace is done in relatively independent conditions. And again, if we're thinking about employers or universities and the inferences they want to be able to make, they do want, obviously they don't mind anyone using a spell check in a dictionary, but they probably do want to be making inferences like, can this individual write an email with very few errors in, in you know, the 15 or 20 minutes that they've got to do so? Yep. So actually then, whilst exams are an artificial environment, actually there are some aspects of the real world that they do mimic in that sense. And that I think employers and universities and end users of assessments probably do find useful. So I think it's a, it's a mix of things. I think one thing is you need some artificial things in there to provide essentially the shared meaning. I think the other thing is we forget that there is still in the real world an element of individual work that people do want to, to have some legitimate inferences about. Mm. And, and revisiting cramming, I think that yeah. in the real world, cramming really is a legitimate approach to preparing for yeah. many things, such as a presentation, yeah. for example, or, or many right. things like yeah. that. So there are some aspects of cramming that I think, are, you know, as I say, don't help. As you say, though, some aspects of the sort of deadline, mm-hmm. the, the aspect of a deadline that an exam brings is quite helpful. Definitely. The exams have deadlines. And there are some things about deadlines which bring out bad behaviour. And, and I would say, you know, pure cramming is a bad behavior. Mm-hmm. But there are some things about deadlines that bring out probably good behavior mm-hmm. in that we all know for all of us, if we don't have deadlines, maybe things don't get done. Yeah. <laughs> right. So the existence of deadlines in exams and the fact that you have this big date you're working up to, there are aspects of that which are repeated in the real world. There are things where you have presentations you have to prepare for. And I would say, actually, the kind of behavior it generates for those is, is not necessarily bad behavior, actually. That is probably something that you need to learn that, that there is a deadline and you've got to get the thing done by then. And if you don't yep. get it done by then, that's the problem. Totally. So, yeah. Cool. Well, we had a whole host of questions kind of flood in yeah. via Twitter, but we're running a bit short on time. So I'm just going to go to one. And this is a question from Partridge Maths. And I'm choosing to go with this one because I've seen quite a lot of teachers yeah. over the last year or so put under quite a lot of pressure, yeah. especially maths teachers, to perform a question level analysis. So for those who aren't familiar with it, yeah. essentially, you know, you get your whole class to sit a test. Instead of just marking it and giving each student their paperback and their final mark, you actually have to enter into a spreadsheet yeah. for each student and for each question, for example, a one or a zero or a one, two or a zero to represent how well they did on that particular question at this particular point in time. And I just wanted to ask, you know, for the benefit of teachers out there and also on behalf of Partridge Maths from Twitter, are question level analysis worth the time and effort from a formative assessment point of view or just from any point of view? So that's a really good question. Now, if you're asking me about them for like a reading exam, I would say they have very little benefit. Mm-hmm. I think for maths, it is more complex. So to a large extent, the value of them kind of, it depends. Yep. So let me give one example where I'd say maybe there's less value. 
if it's a summative assessment, and the summative assessment is covering a whole range of different topics in maths, so it's quite a big summative assessment and it's assessing lots of different aspects. The issue you're going to get there with a QLA, what will be the sort of the problems with it? The, the issue there is you're not going to have many questions because it's going to be assessing a lot of topics. You probably may not have many questions on each topic. Yep. And there was some analysis that was done in England on GCSE exams, I think, a few years ago. And it showed that because GCSE exams, maths exams, are assessing so much different, you know, so, so many different aspects of maths, and there are some simple questions, there are some much harder questions, and there's some on algebra, and there's some on geometry, and et cetera, et cetera, and there's some that blend, you know, different topics. They found that, you know, that one exam gives you a good idea of how the kids done at maths overall, mm -hmm. but it can't really give you a very good understanding and a reliable understanding of all the subdomains of maths mm. because it just doesn't have enough questions on each and every subdomain. So the problem with a QLA, one of the issues you can get with a QLA when you come to a maths exam like that is you'll say, well, look, there were these, all these questions on, I don't know, data handling, and they didn't do very well on these questions on data handling. And this shows they've got an issue with data handling. Mm -hmm. But there may have only been, you know, there's only a couple of questions on data handling. It may have been that they were particularly tricky questions. So actually your QLA, is, you know, yes, they got those questions wrong, but it may not necessarily be telling you that their issue is with data handling, it may have been something to do with those questions were particularly tricky. So I think using QLA for big summative exams can be a little bit misleading mm -hmm. because the questions are, you know, just so disparate and sampling from so many different subtopics. You're not really getting a reliable read through. Again, it goes back to the idea that the root problem here is that a summative exam is measuring performance, not learning. Yes. So if I think of an example, then the other extreme, where would QLA be more effective? Say you're giving the kids a 20, they've just studied something very specific on, I don't know, multiplying two two-digit numbers. <laughs> mm -hmm. If you give them 20 questions about multiplying two two-digit numbers, and they're all designed to, you know, tap slightly different misconceptions in one way or another, if you did a QLA on those, actually I think it would be quite revealing. Because then you could see, wow, you know, if they all got this particular question wrong, and that's something to do with something we've looked at in class, but maybe they haven't fully understood, I think you could learn from that. So I guess what I'm saying is I think the QLA, it would depend on the kind of question. It depends on the purpose of the assessment. If it's a formative assessment and it's something they've just studied in class and those questions have been designed to tap the things they've just been doing in class, I can see there's some value to it. I think when you're doing it with a summative assessment, you can lose some of that because the questions haven't been designed in that same way. The other issue which you allude to there, which is, is, is an issue, is the time, the workload. Yeah. And I think, again, like everything we do, you've got to factor that in. You've got to factor in the opportunity cost. And if it's a really big summative assessment, it can take a lot of time to go through and enter in the QLA. And if you're doing that and actually it's then not, the questions obviously aren't perfectly optimised performative feedback, then there's definitely an issue. You're spending a lot of time on that and it may not be the best thing to do. So I definitely get that time issue and I've, I've been in that situation too where I realised how long that can take. I mean, I would say my preferences, and again, something I did with, with English actually, we would set up a system when I was working at art. One of the features we built in were these 10 multiple choice questions every couple of weeks that were assessing things people had just been taught. 
Mm-hmm. And I think there is a value there if you can set up something that's relatively efficient, if you can look at where the common sort of patterns are and the common errors are. So not a really sort of, unfortunately, a sort of straightforward yes or no from me. Like it's very much, it depends. It very much depends on the type of question. It very much depends on the systems you've got and how long it's going to take you to get that analysis. So I would say at one extreme, I think just blanket getting everybody to code a summative assessment, QLA it, you know, it often can be a lot of time and you're not necessarily getting the gains. But I wouldn't want to write off the whole concept because I think when it's done formatively for questions that have been carefully selected and maybe they're multiple choice ones that have been deliberately set up with misconceptions, you can get a learning benefit from it. So I think you've got to look carefully at like what you're trying to achieve, how much time it will take, what the questions are like. So sorry not to have a cut and dry thing there, but hopefully that gives some idea of how you can make it work. Totally. No, and I think, you know, speaking about principles and trade-offs is a really yeah. good way to approach it and hopefully gives yeah. teachers the tools to speak to their colleagues and maybe even school leadership about the pros and cons of various approaches. Yeah. I will pick up on one thing you said there. You talked about the approach at ARC with multiple choice questions. Yeah. It's very similar to something we've started to do at our school. Asking teachers to do a question level analysis is not something that I would put upon them. But we have found this incredible app called ZipGrade. Yeah. I have no affiliation with ZipGrade. I don't know if you've heard of it, yeah, if you've yeah. heard of it. But it's just like for listeners, they might be interested. You use your smartphone and you print off a bubble sheet. It's identified with a student and you just scan it with your phone and it automatically does a item level analysis. And you can see, you know, on question three, 10% of mm-hmm. the class got that incorrect. So I know that's a concept that is probably worth revisiting. So we found that really helpful with kind of weekly tests at the school that I'm at. Yeah, definitely. And I would always say if you can get technology to do things like that. I mean, I always struggle to find like the perfect system that I, I wanted, but I know there are things out there. I know there's schools here who use clickers, yep. which are little um, gadgets, you know, where you can type in the answer and it will do the analysis for you. So whatever you can come up with, because the frustrating thing is, is that when you can get this analysis done quickly, I think it can give you a really a lot of insights for relatively little work. When you're having to type in the QLA, you know, 10 questions, 30 kids, all yep. of a sudden that's an enormous amount of work. So what you said about the trade-off is very true. If you've got a system that allows you to do that in just a few minutes, mm. amazing. Actually, if it's then taking, if it's taking you sort of, you know, an hour and a half to do, actually, you know, is it worth it? You have got to think about these things. Like, I don't think there's anything that is always worth whatever time it would take. You know, you have to evaluate everything in terms of the time it takes and the opportunity cost and what you could be doing with that time otherwise. Totally. But I do think this is an area where technology can be really powerful. And the teacher time should really be focused on working out what to do with the data, not the data exactly. processing. Exactly, exactly. One other really quick approach, if, if it's not even a multiple choice question, something I've been doing in the classroom recently is you can just, at the end of a quick assessment, just write up the numbers, you know, there's 10 questions, write one to 10 on the board, and then just get, ask students, raise your hand if you've got question one correct. Raise your hand if you've got yeah, question two absolutely. correct. Just do a tally and bang in 30 seconds, you've seen absolutely. that question two and question five are yeah. ones you need to revisit next lesson. So yeah, just yeah. another one yeah, for, yeah. for teachers who might yeah, like to try it out. Definitely, definitely, yeah. Cool. All right. Well, we've talked about the challenges of rubrics. We've talked about some of the ins and outs of exam-based assessments, Daisy. So please enlighten us. What should assessment in our schools be looking like from your point of view? So, yeah, i just give a couple of hopefully quite simple practical principles that you can apply across different subjects. I think for me, summative assessment once or twice a year. Don't overdo it. Mm-hmm. And for me, summative assessment, you want to get shared meaning, a grade or a scout score. There was a sort of period with, in England with national curriculum levels where schools were assessing really trying to give grades 
almost in some ways they were using these levels every lesson. Mm. And then they were trying to do assessments, you know, levels every six weeks. And, and that was like the dominant mode of assessment. And all these other valuable types of assessment would just get squeezed out because everything was about, you know, summative assessments and, and levels. Mm-hmm. So I would say, like, you only want to give a grade or a scale score like, once or twice a year. And then in between that, you want to be doing activities which can give you data but don't give you a grade. So the approach I like is two points in the year where you are going for a summative assessment or grade. And in between that, it's the kind of the quizzes, it's the short answer stuff, it's things that are really focused on what you've just taught the pupils. Mm-hmm. So again, if I just apply it to English, the way we were sort of setting things up at ARC when I was there, it was, you know, there'll be maybe, I think we were at three, but my preference is definitely now two. But maybe there's two essays a year. And those essays, as much as possible, are things that, that you're hoping they want to draw on their knowledge from across everything they've studied, not just that year, but in previous years. And then lesson to lesson, it's all about, you know, have you learned this? Have you understood what we've just learned in this lesson? So often quite simple assessments, really simple right or wrong answers, really simple things just designed to see, have you understood what was happening in this lesson? And they can build synoptically too. Mm-hmm. So I was saying, you, know, you can have a 10 question multiple choice quiz every two weeks, and maybe two or three of those questions can be drawn from previous weeks. So you're always recapping what's gone on before. So for me, that as a, as a principle, you know, frequent, short, simple questions that the focus is on the learning, informative assessment, and then two bigger assessment points with more complex questions where your aim is to see kind of how well pupils are applying this across the board. Okay. Fantastic. Well, that's probably a pretty good lead into comparative judgments, which I assume you would advocate for those large kind of summative assessments. Am I correct in thinking that? Yeah, definitely. So comparative judgment is best for open, complex questions. So you don't need it for right or wrong questions. Mm-hmm. And you don't need it for exams that consist of lots of right and wrong questions. Yep. What you need it for are the open questions. So typically, you know, probably what I would say most of us was using it is for things like essay-based responses. Mm-hmm. That's where it really has its strengths. But you can use it for open maths questions, open science questions, you know, open-ended investigative problems. You can use it for anything where there isn't a right or wrong answer. So we have people using it in every subject, I would say, you can think of. Cool. And so, for example, if your class all writes an essay, what you do is you'll scan them in to a yeah. software like No More Marking. That's a pretty quick process. I had to play with it the other day. And then oh, cool. it'll bring up pairs of essays. Yep. And then you just have to click on the left-hand one or the right-hand one based on which one you think's better. That's right, yeah. What's going on behind the scenes, just for, for listeners? So the comparative judgment algorithm is going on behind the scenes. It's not a new algorithm. It was developed back in the 1920s by a guy called Louis Thurstone. Uh, he was a pioneer of psychometrics. You, know, you can look him up. You can look up the algorithm. Mm-hmm. To really get a sense of this, we've got a little game on our website called The Colours Game. I really recommend playing The Colours Game mm. because it just illustrates how this process works with the colour blue. <laughs> okay. So it makes you do paired comparisons of the colour blue so you can see. You can just sort of visualize how the algorithm works. But essentially, you're making comparisons all the time. And based on all of those comparisons, the algorithm is combining all the comparisons to come up with a measurement scale. Mm-hmm. So every script is seen a certain number of times. And based on how many times that it's seen and picked as the better piece of writing, that will determine its final score. So have a little play with the colors game, and that will illustrate how the judgments turn into a scale score. Right, and we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes for sure. Yeah. Do you see any limits to comparative judgment in terms of the subjects, the task length, the task type, the task variation or consistency, anything like that? Yeah, definitely. As I say, it's it's for open questions. Look, there are really useful applications in maths. I tend to think it's probably 
where it's got the most impact is going to be for essays. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is just because you can do lovely things with maths with it, but maths at the moment, I would say, doesn't really have a massive reliability problem. Mm-hmm. The problem at the moment is writing and essay really do have a massive reliability problem. So I think with essays, it is solving a really pressing need. I think with maths, it's a cool thing to do, but it maybe isn't solving as pressing a need. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. But it's, it's still great. I mean, I love the stuff we do for maths and we have some great maths questions. And we have, as I say, lots and lots of schools using it for maths. And our scientific advisors develop some really lovely maths, maths questions that you can ask. So basically, if you've got an open question that you would typically be assessing with a rubric, <laughs> comparative judgment lets you assess it without a rubric. And that's, as I say, one of the reasons I got so into it, because I was a few years ago really realizing some of the flaws with rubrics and the problems they were having on teaching and learning, but I couldn't think of a better way. Mm. <laughs> and so I felt like I was stuck with this rubric-based approach, even though I could see all the flaws it was causing. And then comparative judgment does let you move away from that rubric. Okay. Now, I played with it with some physics reports. So a bit of context yeah. here in Victoria, Australia, year 12 physics students, they design their own question and they write a report that's around a thousand words or so long. I personally had some issues because I found that my working memory was getting yeah. a bit full when I tried to right. read one full report, another full report. They're both about different topics because the students have posed different questions, even though they're open-ended questions, or especially because they are. And my working memory was just full that by the time I got to the second report, I couldn't remember enough factors to accurately make a comparison. Is this something you've come across before? So that's really interesting. And I'm not sure about anyone doing sort of long physics reports like that in the way you mentioned. But I think what's really interesting there is you're right. I can imagine that if you're reading the two of them and your working memory would be full. But my response would be marking essays traditionally i mean what i'd love for you to do if you also put in the show notes put in a link to one of the webinars that we run mm-hmm. uh, we do these webinars where we demonstrate how comparative judgment works okay because i think what you've got to realize is is what is the alternative to comparative judgment you know what's the traditional method of marking and the issue with the traditional method of marking is it does have real big issues with reliability so everything you've said there about reading the two physics reports comparing them i can see that would be an issue my response would be <laughs> I'd love to see, first of all, what's the process of marking traditionally mm-hmm. with these reports? But what you're essentially doing there is in some ways, you're almost having to hold all of the essays you're attempting to mark in working memory at once because you're trying to, you know, when you're marking one, yes, you're marking it against the essay, but you need to have some idea of how it's doing relative to all the rest. Yep. So one of the issues with traditional marking is it's an enormous load on working memory. One of the things we know about traditional marking is that the order in which you mark the essays can have quite a big impact on the marks you give them. Mm-hmm. So with traditional essays, if you saw a really great physics report first, the ones you see just after that really great one might not do as well mm. because you've kind of set your, you, you know, yep. you've calibrated yourself, you've set your bar at a very high level. Anchoring. Exactly, exactly. So the things you talk about, I can definitely see what you're saying, that the, the working memory of the comparison would be tricky. I would say the working memory burdens imposed by a traditional marking are a real issue as well and we know you know cause cause big issues with reliability of marking mm-hmm. so that'd be one thing that i'd say there that would be tricky what was the other thing you said that you found difficult the students chose different questions ah that's a great point as well mm. yeah so that is fascinating to i think about this a lot because when pupils choose different questions and there's quite a few both exam and non-examined assessments that let you do that again that is something that even with traditional marking does introduce 
a problem. Yep. You know, it does introduce a bias. Now, if I take an extreme example, when I started teaching, there was a GCSE English literature exam. And there were options of books that you could study, mm-hmm. which you think, well, this is great. Of course, everyone should have to study the same option. We should offer different books. One of the books was Pride and Prejudice, you know, which is sort of 19th century novel, pretty tricky language. I don't know what the reading age of it would be, but it would be a pretty tricky reading age. Mm-hmm. And one of the other books on this course that you could select was, I mean, you, you may not have heard of it. I'm not sure where it's known out of England, but it was called Stone Cold. Mm-hmm. And it was a book that was probably written for... I don't know, really. I mean, it had some quite adult subject matter, but the reading age, I think, would have been about 10 or 11. And it was about 100 pages long. So you were saying, well, there are people who are sitting this exam and some of them are writing about a book written maybe with a reading age of 10 or 11 that's 100 pages long. And some of them are writing about Pride and Prejudice. And the grade they get at the end is meant to be comparable. Mm. Now, you know, that's an extreme example. But whenever in an exam you allow an option you are making a big assumption about the comparability of those options. Mm. And you are introducing essentially an element of unreliability. Mm -hmm. And I think with comparative judgment, it just really brings it home to you because you will be comparing across. But I think that is an issue with all assessment. And I think one thing we don't realize enough is the more options you introduce into an assessment, the more potential for for unreliability, for, for even a little bit of bias that will happen. And the options students pick do do have an impact you know some options are easier than others Mm. or easier to get better grades on than others so i know what you mean when you compare different things with comparative judgment it's tricky but i think it's just kind of bringing into relief something that is already there and if you really want to max out reliability you probably need to make again everybody do the same thing now i'm not saying you have to do that i'm saying again it's a Mm (laughs) trade-off and Mm. where do you want to put that trade-off now for me i think the stone cold pride and prejudice trade-off was too big a trade-off yeah. Like I feel like you have to. I feel like I'm okay as a literature teacher saying, "Well, there's there's a choice of plays, but they're all Shakespeare plays, yep. or there's a choice of novels, but they're all 19th century, or they're all 20th century." I feel much less comfortable saying you can have this, you know, 400, 500 page 19th century novel and a hundred page novel written for 11 year olds. Like mm. I get uneasy. So, in some ways, the nice thing about comparative judgment is it forces you to realise what you are saying is comparable. And actually to think if that is a legitimate, a legitimate decision or not. Mm. One of the other big issues I had when I was doing this, and I love your thoughts on it, was I found that some students, for example, wrote really good introductions, but then yeah. their data analysis was a total mess. Or vice versa, they did fantastic data analysis, but there was some big conceptual issue in their methodology or something. And I thought what I really needed was to be able to compare like with like. Like I needed to be able to break it down ease the burden on my yeah. working memory and also categorize things and say, you know, I'm going to compare this introduction with this introduction. Has no more marking or have you thought about having a switch in the algorithm somewhere to say, all right, first I'm going to look at introductions, compare them, and I'm weighting the introduction at, you know, X percent, and then I'm going to compare the next section. I just felt that if that was a functionality yeah. within it, that would have helped, yeah. made my job a lot easier. Is that something you've thought about? So people do mention it, and again, I think we would say, no, it's not something we want to introduce, and that the strength of comparative judgment is about making an overall decision about kind of overall quality. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it isn't about kind of breaking it down into these sort of subunits. It's about, it is about looking at the whole. You mm-hmm. know, it is about holistic assessment. And I would say that there is a value in breaking things down, but I would go back to what I said before about the formative summative. I would say if you want to break it down, like break it down and do some different assessments. 
you know, like if you want yeah. to get a really good handle on their data analysis versus their ability to express themselves in prose or whatever, you know, give them something that's a closed set of closed questions on data analysis. That will give you the insight you need there. Comparative judgment is best used for tasks where you want them to put it all together and also where it's best used. And this might speak to maybe some of the differences with your physics report and the writing we do. Mm -hmm. But it's also tasks where the whole is more than the sum of its parts and where the bringing together of the whole is kind of just something different okay. <laughs> from just adding up, adding up the parts. Yep, and that that's why sense. it works so well with writing. Yep. And with literature essays. And so that's where, look, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on the type of assessments you're doing it with. It may well be that for what you're doing, yeah, actually maybe comparative judgment isn't quite right. Mm -hmm. But I would say it's the things for where it's the holistic judgment about the overall quality of this single piece of writing. The other thing I'd say, and I'd say definitely put this link to the webinar in your show notes because it will give insights into this, is the wealth of data you get out of the back end of comparative judgment. It means that, look, even with something like writing, there are pupils who write a brilliant introduction and then it fades away and it gets much weaker. Yeah. And how do you judge a piece that does that versus a piece that starts weakly but builds up and ends phenomenally? Mm. Or how do you judge a piece that's really creative but has lots of errors versus a piece that's technically accurate but a bit dull? Mm -hmm. And what we would say is go with your gut when you're judging, but when you look at the data afterwards, there's a wealth of data to help you tease out these differences. So one really important bit of data is every script gets an infit value. And the infit value tells you to the extent to which people agreed on that script. So often when you are doing open-ended complex tasks, there are some that are hard to mark and there are some that provoke legitimate disagreement. So they will be flagged up with, a, with an infit score that's quite high. And that would suggest that people have disagreed on that. And often what people disagree on is those scripts that are patchy, mm. that are particularly good in one area and weak in another. So the point about holistic tasks is you'll never get complete agreement on them. But comparative judgment lets you see perhaps the ones where the disagreement is there. Mm. We're running short on time, but I've got one more CJ question. We touched on, we didn't really get into much detail, but we touched on biases before, for example, with, with rubric, and it's something you explored more in the book. When I was doing CJ and I, I had a play with some, yeah. I've had a play with psychology stuff as well, with some colleagues in English stuff as well. I've always been a bit worried about the susceptibility to bias based on things mm -hmm. like student handwriting. Yeah. Do yeah. you have any data about how much impact these kind of surface features have when you're using CJ? Yeah. So again, I'd say do a demo because we talk through all the data that you get from a CJ session mm -hmm. behind the scenes. We've had people do a few sort of studies where they've had all the pieces handwritten and then all the pieces typed up and assessed. Okay. But on handwriting specifically, I'd say a couple of things. One is, Handwriting bias is an issue with traditional marking. Indeed. You know, it is a big issue. And in fact, just before Christmas, Ofqual, who are the exam regulator over here, published a report on, this was one of the things they, they put in the report. And they got, they recorded transcripts of a bunch of experienced examiners with traditional marking assessing GCSE English language. And markers were mentioning handwriting. Like I can send you some of the things, you know, they were talking yeah, right. about the kids' handwriting being very scruffy and the piece of writing looks like this, it probably means that. And we know that handwriting bias is an issue with traditional assessments. Mm. So if, if you want to eliminate handwriting bias completely, you should get all pupils to type everything up. Mm -hmm. Okay, that would be the surest, securest way of eliminating handwriting bias. Now, I would not recommend that because I think there is a value to handwriting, particularly in the earlier years. And I think if we got rid of handwriting in assessments, it would devalue the role of it. And I think that could be problematic. You introduced touch typing bias then. 
Well, I know that's a very good point as well, exactly. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, look, for us as, a, as an organisation, it would be much easier for us if everyone typed in their essays. But we don't actually offer that. We set it up so that, you, you know, you've done it, that you scan in the handwriting. Mm-hmm. You can scan in typing things as well, but we've set it up like that so that it is easy for people to assess handwritten pieces of work. Mm-hmm. So, look, if you want to eliminate it completely, get rid of handwriting, do, do the typing. Once you introduce handwriting, there will be human judgment. We know with traditional assessment that handwriting bias is an issue. And with comparative judgment, we haven't done anything major. We've done a, a few things where schools off their own back have, have done assessments of things typed in and handwritten. And it hasn't been too much of an issue, but these are quite quite small, small state assessments. Mm-hmm. The biggest thing that I would flag up, though, that the advantage that comparative judgment gives you is what I said before about being able to attract and identify decisions mm-hmm. and also that with comparative judgment every script is seen 20 times mm. so the problem with traditional marking is if you get a marker who's a bit tired they're a bit sleepy you know they're trying to get to the end of their marking and they do because one's struggling to read just mark it down that script will probably never get seen again yep. with traditional marking the great majority of scripts are only ever seen by one person so if that one person makes a road judgment that's it for the script. Mm. With comparative judgment, every script is seen 20 times. So you might get a rogue judgment. Anything involving human judgments, there might be a rogue decision. But that rogue decision gets cancelled out by the other 19 decisions. And if there are real disagreements on it, that's flagged up by the infit score. Mm-hmm. So the point is there's just so many more safety mechanisms with comparative judgment. You know, if and when there are road decisions, it's much more easier to identify them and it's much less likely they're going to have an impact. So that, for me, would be the biggest issue about addressing some of these things to do with human bias. But I would also say, you know, the paired comparisons are much easier for us as humans to manage than, than some of the traditional approaches. Totally. Yeah. Fantastic. All right, we might jump into some closing questions then, Daisy. So the first one here is, what advice would you give to your first year teacher self? <laughs> don't 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 stress out about the rubrics <laughs> i would say probably you know don't worry that you find marking hard because okay. everybody does and i think when i first started teaching i was under the impression that there was some kind of magical marking elixir that you know when you became an expert teacher you would suddenly just be able to look at a script and know precisely what mark it got <laughs> yeah. and that that would be the truth <laughs> and i think actually realizing that that doesn't exist (laughs) is in some ways you know a bit scary but it's quite a relief Mm. to know that there isn't some aspect of perfection out there that traditional marking is a struggle Mm. and everyone finds it difficult so i think just knowing that the struggles i had with marking were not unique (laughs) and were not really you know a sign that i was incompetent (laughs) would have been nice to know that's great that's great advice Next question, what's your information diet like? So who do you particularly follow on Twitter? Are there any kind of email lists you sign up to? Any journals or publications you make sure you read every edition of? Anything like that? Do you mean about uh, education in general? Well, you can tell us about football and cricket as well if you like, but um, <laughs> let's stick with education yeah. for now. So I really like Dylan Williams stuff. I think that's fantastic. There aren't any particular, I would say, sort of mailing lists or whatever, but the blogs that I read... You know, look, I think, you know, Australian one that I read, that I think I think Greg Ashman's blog's great. You mm-hmm. know, I, I often read that. There's a real sort of wealth of stuff happening in the in the UK at the minute. There's some really, really fascinating things. You know, there's a lot of, I guess, just individual teacher bloggers whose yep. work I like to keep up with. And I do have a little list on Twitter. There's probably a couple of dozen or so. 
who I'd like to keep up with. So, uh, you know, mentioning sort of one individually would be, might be a bit, sort of seen, but Claire okay. Seeley uh-huh. is a primary blogger in England who is really fab and who is really insightful. So, so she's definitely on the list. Of, I, I say I've got a list of probably a, a couple of dozen of individual teacher bloggers who I like to follow and stay on top of. Okay. Is that a public list? No. <laughs> oh, okay. But yeah, you know, I'm just saying like, you know, I, I just try to find the sort of individual teacher bloggers who I think are saying interesting things about things I'm interested in Cool. and, and keep an eye on what they write. In terms of the sort of wider things that are out there. Yeah. I mean, I've, look, I read the, the TES in Schools Week. You know, I think the TES has got some great stuff. The TES Podagogy podcast, Craig Barton's podcast, Definitely. you know, I've, I've been on that and he's got some great things on that. Craig Barton is another one who's stuff I read. So the Institute for Teaching are doing some great things at the minute. Yes. Pepsi McCray and Harry Fletcher Wood are there. Mm-hmm. So I'd and such them. I mean, I'm saying names, you know, there's a, like I say, there's a lot of things I read, but I think the really nice thing at the moment in England, there's a real nice sort of, um, quite a sort of fertile sort of ecosystem of people who are sharing and reading and doing some really interesting research. So I just try to stay stay on top of that. It's hard because there's so much stuff out there and you're always mm. trying to do your own thing. But yeah, I'm just trying to stay on top of that as much as possible and keep an eye on the really great ideas that are bubbling up from the classroom, as well as also, you know, the more sort of maybe academic stuff that's coming out. Data Lab, Education Data Lab yep. are fantastic. You know, they do some really nice, you know, data type stuff, data analysis that I, I try and stay on top of. So I guess a mix of like, what are people doing in the classroom, ideas that they've got and things they're trying out, and then a mix of things like, I guess, Data Lab or the Institute for Teaching or, you know, things that are, are coming out of research centres where people are coming up with some academic research about how things work. Cool. What's next for Daisy Christo? What are you currently excited about? So I'm looking a lot at education technology at the minute. So I mentioned that to you about how I think there's a, a way you can use it to, to produce workload and improve the quality of the assessment data you get mm-hmm. obviously you know no more marking comparative judgment is a technology-based approach it wasn't really possible until you could get technology that could crunch through calculations so quickly so i'm really interested in looking at different approaches to ed tech and that's something i'm working on writing a bit about at the moment so i'm working on writing a book about education technology cool. and different approaches to it so so that's what's next for me fantastic and any last calls to action for listeners things you'd like them to go away today and do yeah check out comparative judgment have a go at the colours game if you get the chance. And if you if that interests you, have a look at one of the webinars. So we run the, these free webinars. It's me. I run them. You do some live judging. Cool. So if you're not sick to death of my voice already, you can sign up to those. They're about an hour long. And basically, I, I take you through how the judging works, get you to do some judging of some, some kids' writing, and you then get to see the results live. So they're, they're quite good fun. Awesome. Is it nomoremarking.com? Oh, yeah, the events page where we list all our webinars is, I think, just slash upcoming events. But I'll send you that link so you've got it. Great. And I'll put in the show notes. Okay. Well, Daisy Christodouli, thanks so much for your time today. It's been a long and fascinating discussion. <laughs> We've, um, you know, we started off talk. you told us a little bit about ARC and the work that you did there. We talked about the distinction between the generic skills and the deliberate practice models of learning. A point I found really interesting was you talked about the invisibility of learning and how AFL kind of brings it to the fore and makes it more visible. You interestingly talked about formative assessment as students frowning, which I thought was interesting. (laughs) We delved into validity and reliability. We talked about burning rubrics. We talked about why exams look the way they do, the ins and outs of comparative judgment. And finally, you told us we don't have to worry too much if we find marking hard. So um, Daisy Christo, thanks so much for your time today. I really recommend people to read your book. It was absolutely fantastic. And we look forward to following your work in future. Brilliant. Thanks, Ollie. Really enjoyed it.
Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Eat for Love podcast with Daisy Christodoulou. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com. I thought this was a particularly important episode covering some crucial topics for educators worldwide. And if you agree, I'd be very grateful if you could think of a colleague or colleagues who might also gain something from this episode. If you're walking along or washing the dishes or doing anything else that doesn't involve the operation of heavy machinery or a large hunk of metal traveling at a high speed, then I'd really appreciate you forwarding the podcast to them at your earliest convenience. And as always, if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the Eat podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other Eat episode, please, please, please drop me a line via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time... Keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.